The next transit part from platform 5 will be the 1400 train to Aberdeen, calling at York, Darlington, Newcastle, Merricon, Tweed, Edinburgh, Waverley, Haymarket, Cooper, Bluehurst, Dundee, Arbroath, Montreux, and Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called The Train at Platform 5, an oral history of King's Cross rail workers. A team of researchers interviewed 25 people who worked at this busy London railway terminal to document what life was like working at the station for drivers, guards, pantry boys, station staff and more. In episode one, we explore how and why people came to work at King's Cross Railway Station, with some going back to the age of steam. There are descriptions of the station and neighbourhood in those years. We also look at the ease of getting work at the station, but also the difficulties some faced. We hope you enjoy the podcast. I always had the feeling it was King's Cross was the centre of the universe. You know, all the all the trains and the tubes all, all seemed to go through there. You know, you had some pancreas next door. And... The railway, I don't think anybody that's spent any time working on it is never just a job. This is a huge part of my life. I mean, I made some of the best friends I'll ever have on the railway. The main things were the camaraderie. That was it. Once I got to the cross, I didn't really want to leave. I stopped looking to go elsewhere. Coming out of King's Cross into the tunnels, heading off into the night, really exciting. You know, you, you can't even measure how brilliant that was. And every single time you thought, yeah, here we go, you know, walloped it open, raw, off you go. sort of hits you in the face, you know, I mean, the architecture of the place for a start, a huge station. Um, at that time, probably about 600 drivers and driver's assistants there. So, um, you know, quite a different environment, but again, just so full of, packed full of history. And of course, the architecture of that roof is two huge double arch, double span arches. Everything inside was highly Victorian. Um, you know, nice shiny wooden balustrades and, and the nearer you got to the management offices the cleaner everything became, strangely enough. It was quite a busy station, it always has been. It was uh, buried behind a load of buildings and a car park that was out in front of it. It was dirty. The roof uh, was a black as your act because it had diesels and it still had steam. It hadn't been, you know, given a, a facelift or nothing. Uh, but yeah, it was just a dull, dingy place. It was, it was quite a bit dilapidated. Obviously, we had the station, then we had the massive goods yard as well. We had St Pancras next door. So a lot of railway men in that area. Yeah, it was pretty grim in, in terms of the way that it was maintained, but it just had an atmosphere about it. The whole thing had an atmosphere about it. Then you've got eight platforms that faced you in the main train shed. And then you've got that little appendage around the corner, the 9, 10 and 11 at the time, which was the local station or the suburban station, depending on how you wanted to put, phase it. Particularly over on the right-hand side, if you look out from the station, at night, it was taken over by the GPO post office, and they ran the travelling post trains from there. 
from about eight at night to in the morning, absolutely hectic. Vehicles coming and going and, you know, shouting. And it, it, it was like a port more than the railway station, I suppose. There was, of course, the, the 1970s, then new, intended to be temporary, I think, single-storey concourse building at the front of the original 1852 station that went out almost to Euston Road itself. Surrounding area was, was just full of railway buildings. I mean, a lot of them, but probably most, have been demolished or I think in some cases have just collapsed. Um, it was just cobble streets and old Victorian buildings around the back of the station. Yeah, the goods yard, I mean, I, when I got to King's Cross, the goods yard was in its sort of latter days, really. But it, it, it was enormous. We, we, we called the, the rails, the tracks, individual tracks on roads, as we said about road learning. And the number of roads in the goods yard were, I mean, you just, they go on and on, you know, they were all the way from King's Cross, all the way to St Pancras, and in, in the old days there were sheds for, because of the amount of goods that were being bought in, there were sheds for individual goods. So there was a potato shed, um, you know, there was a milk shed, there was all sorts of different sheds. The engines would, would bring the full goods trains in and what our job mainly was, and the people that were based up the goods, was shunting all the wagons around. There was probably about half a dozen, maybe more shunt engines up there. The station during the night would be full of pimps and prostitutes um, and uh, post office workers unloading mail trays. It's quite an extraordinary place. Most of these um, girls, and I say there were girls, were very young, would come down from the north and, and you know, act as prostitutes and then go back on the, the first train in the morning. You stepped outside the station and it was full of drunks, drug addicts, prostitutes. It was a very, very down and out area. Um, we used to have to walk from King's Cross Station up to King's Cross Goodyard as part of our job because some of our freight trains would start and finish in the Goodyard. And to walk up York Way, you were taking your life in your own hands because you were going to be accosted. I never went anywhere at night off the station without having my hand lamp with me. <laughs> the bar, it was a great big lump of, of iron. <laughs> I've only had to use once, fortunately. But... You know, it wasn't a nice place to work, especially when you're close and you're going home. So many times I've been mistaken for somebody who is on the market. <laughs> there was a lot of pubs. There was a lot of drunkenness. And that wasn't just railway work. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it was, I suppose, the, the word that everybody else would use for it would be seedy, but I liked it. You know, it, it, it might be seedy, but I like it, I think of it more as gritty and real and down to earth. King's Cross Station believed it, that it was the best station in England. It was the best run. It you know, the drivers and staff. There was nobody to touch them. King's Cross drivers seen as this sort of, yeah, I was going to say arrogant. Yeah, I'll use the word arrogant. Arrogant elite, and that might that might only be in their own heads. Who knows? But King's Cross, I think, is is one of the most superior depots. Really, a huge variety of work, different directions, long distances big variety of trains, working everything from 25 mile an hour trains with no brakes right up to 125 mile an hour expresses. 
it had a lot of history, both in terms of you know its its people, but also in terms of its trains, because it had the Flying Scotsman, it had the first um, steam engine to beat a world record, the Mallard at 126 mile an hour. So there was quite a lot of interest in the trains as well as the people. And then I couldn't believe my luck. We used to have a train called the Elizabethan, which was non-stop to Edinburgh. I mean, as a lad, I used to watch it come through and, oh, gosh. Now, when I go and sold my school friends, guess what I'm working on during the summer? The Elizabethan. <laughs> Drivers that came to King's Cross from all over the country, whether because they were redundant or they wanted promotion, um, and there was a, a big hostel there that they were allowed to stay in. It was at Ilford. British Rail had an all-line uh, transfer system and as redundant staff we were given a list of all the depots with vacancies and then we were allowed to have time off to go and visit the depots and see where we wanted to go. Coming from South Wales obviously it was a male-orientated depot, old guys, um, not many youngsters and coming into King's Cross itself obviously it, there was not just drivers, the guards and the, and the, the station staff and the, the ticket revenue staff and the restaurant car staff. It was a huge place. It was quite a big depot in its day, unlike what it is today. Uh, when I walked in there in the mess room in 1971, there was something like 900 drivers, four or 500 second men, and then you had the guards and all. Uh, I don't know. It was a mess room was something like near two, you know, 1,800, 2,000 men that signed on there uh, over the course of the week, like, you know. There were different things going on. There was always card schools going on. There was, um, you know, uh, the black drivers were always playing dominoes. Uh, we did work as well, but I mean, this was just while we were waiting for trains to go out. Uh, there used to be the, the most massive teapot you've ever seen, because if there's 30 odd guys, the, the, the railway sort of tended to run on tea. Within the mess room itself, which was quite big, as you walked through the door, You'd always have the, 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 the guards um, and the card schools on the one side. Then you'd have um, the, the one-armed bandits. There was two of them in, in the room. And then you'd have the senior Link 1 and Link 2 drivers on the table. Then you'd have the visiting foreign drivers from Leeds and Peterborough and Doncaster on another table. And then in the back end, you'd have the, the electric link guards, um, and then on the right-hand side, you'd all have a, a, a squabbling sort of second men, a driver's assistants and the card schools and whatever else. And uh, the junior drivers would mingle with us and play cards and what have you. So even in our mess room, you had a hierarchy, sub-hierarchy uh, within the, 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 the mess room. It was like a family unit. Not only with the drivers, but staff, cleaners, porters. At the time, I think it was the best depot in the country. King's Cross. The main things were the camaraderie. I mean, that, that's, that was it. Once I got to the cross, I didn't really want to leave. Yeah, I, I, I stopped looking to go elsewhere. And I remember one year we went across to Switzerland, all of our railway passes all the way over to Switzerland. We didn't have to pay anything because our, our passes were valid over there. And one, that's one, one of the best holidays I can remember having. Coming up to Christmas time like now, we used to organise day trips across to um, France to do our duty-free shopping and come back. And that was fun days. A group of us used to get together, go across to France. Those who couldn't get the time off work and couldn't go, then they'll give us their, sh give us their shopping lists. Us ladies were going out with our trolleys. You knew you were accepted when you had a nickname. 
and lots of people were only known by their nicknames. Some of them quite funny, some of them I couldn't really repeat on here. Look at some of the pictures of me in early days, you can see I had very long hair. And um, I think I've been there about two weeks before I was christened Gladys. <laughs> My name Chris Loosley, so used to call me Hang Loosely. I was known as Red Knickers because I was considered to be a communist. There was a nice guy called Fingers, who it was said he was called that because he could peel an orange in his pocket without getting it out. One guy, he would, we used to call the Olympic flame because he never went out. If he, he stood, particularly if things went wrong, he would be in the office and that was it. You know, sometimes you go with a miserable guy and there was one guy there called Angry Silence. Um, we had a, a British Rail Staff Association called the Gym. It's like a workman's club for the railway workers. And that was the key of King's Cross Station in the late 70s and the early 80s was you, when you finished work, you went now. You know, some drivers did slide in there before they did work or after they did work to kind of like, not so much drink, but just have the atmosphere, you know? A lot of people saw being at work as part as an extension of their social life. Now, part of that was because of some of them working six or seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and there was no other element to them. They'd go, to, go home, go to bed, get up, come to work, and it was, like, it was an extension. Oh, yeah, we used to have the club, the social club. Days finished, you could go in there, have a drink, have a game of dominoes, and I said, have social... Um, we used to have a dinner dance and we used to have a Christmas party for the kids. And we'd have a whole train with a Santa special headboard on it and uh, the kids would all then be ferried out to the British Rail Staff Association Club at Gordon Hill where we'd lay on a big Christmas party for them. It was great, everybody loved it. I did go around the railway club sometimes if, if there was a cricket match on around there because I love cricket. I remember being around there when uh, when the West Indies beat the Australians, and uh, of course there was a lot of West Indians at King's Cross, and the place was an uproar. Whereas, let's say, Peterborough, they were like a lot older, and they all had their own little corner. So you just leave them alone, just, just never say a lot to you. They look at you strange, like, here comes a black man, and where's he come from? Whereas at King's Cross, there was actually black drivers there. Well, the, the first black train driver, uh, was actually a King's Cross driver, a guy called Wilson Samuel Jackson. And whilst King's Cross was a very progressive depot and, and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of left-thinking people there, there were also a small cabal of, of racists there. Starting work at King's Cross, I was second into a lot of Afro-Caribbean drivers, you know. The elder Afro-Caribbean drivers went through a lot before my time. You know, I think it was still there when I started in the 70s, definitely. But from what I can gather, it wasn't as bad as, say, a decade before. They told me about it. They told me about it and they said it was awful, it was horrific. You know, it was awful. I must have had quite an interest from age seven, eight, which was quite typical of young lads of my age at the time, um, which developed into the, uh, the hobby of 
well known of that, those days of train spotting. Uh, and so many numbers went into a notebook to be crossed off in the published books with lists of all the engine numbers in. Well, where we lived in Muswell Hill, every night you could hear the shunting going on in Firm Park, clang, 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 and bash, bash, bash. And really the railway was a sort of background to my early years, only by sound. It was about 1958, uh, three friends of mine, uh, we went to Scotland. We bought a Freedom of Scotland ticket and we travelled round for a whole week in Scotland and came back and I think I was hooked with train travel then. And I wanted a job where I could actually go out with trains and, and the hotels and catering seemed the ideal thing. And back in them days, for the kids that weren't academically bright, it was mail or rail. If you could get them on a mail or the rail, once they're in a big environment, you're, they're all right, you know? And in them days, when you you went to the railway because there's a shortage of manpower on the railway, it was like boys from the black stuff. You said, give us a job. And I said, when do you want to start? And that's how it comes. So I ended up on the railway. I actually went on as a stopgap. And then 45 years later, I was still in that gap. I went along, uh, got the interview, went for the, 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 the most basic of tests. And it was, it was virtually, can you write your own name and can you count to five? Uh, and I was successful. And suddenly I've gone from being on the social to, to actually starting onto the railway. And it was like, wow. And my mother said to me, there's a job here, Johnny. How would you like to be a fireman? So I thought, I thought yeah, I can do that. Dad often gets me watering his vegetables. I'm pretty handy with a hose pipe. No, she said, not that sort of a fireman, a British Railways fireman. Wow, I thought, now that sounds interesting. I had pictures of the uh, mail train thundering through the night at 90 miles away. Yeah, that'll do for me. When I left school, I applied for a job at uh, British Aerospace in Stevenage. And another place called Jones and Cranes doing an apprenticeship, engineer apprenticeship. And I got both jobs and I couldn't make my mind out which one I want. So my dad, he worked on the railway, he says to me, why don't you try the railway? So I went, applied for it, had the interview, and then I had three jobs. So I had to like decide. And the railway was, it was 14 pound, just over 14 pound. So I choose that, that was more money. So I choose the railway. And that's, uh, 48 years ago. <laughs> Just prior to working on the railway, I worked in a, the Heinz factory in Hulsden for three years. And I was a member of the, an active member of the Transport and General Workers Union there. And it was then quite difficult in those days, in, the, in this early 70s, it was quite difficult for trade union activists to find a job if they were known. Uh, nothing was around, I tried a few factories and I just got blanked. And a friend of mine said, well, you better get down to Wilson Junction because British Rail have got jobs on offer. In 1978, I was watching a news programme, sort of early evening, and there was a short piece regarding a young woman who had started on the footplate at, I believe it was Cricklewood Depot, um, as what they called a second man then, training to be a train driver, and it caught my interest. I wrote to the general office and applied for a job, I think quite naively as a train driver. I just signed my name P. 
Roach. So they wrote back, dear Mr Roach, please come in for an interview. So I did. Um, they did their best to dissuade me by saying, oh, they, the blokes, they're really funny people. And I thought, well, yeah, I can see that. Eventually, they agreed that I fulfilled all the criteria. I could read and write, walk and talk, I think, basically, and um, agreed to take me on and send me for a medical. But it was made very clear to me by the train crew manager at the time who interviewed me that I was on my own. Anything that happened was all down to me. My father worked on the East African Railways. It was the normal thing, you know, when a father works on the railways, the sons followed their father. And uh, uh, when I finished school, the high school, uh, I managed to get a job on the railways in the control. Came to London on 15th of November, 1970. I went to King's Cross in the staff office. There was a Mr. McKeever, very nice gentleman. He asked me to fill the application. They asked for my experience and I took my papers with me. And they said, okay, you can start the next day. And I went to the guards training school. A lot of kids in the 50s, you want to be an engine driver. And if your granddad was already an engine driver, that was, you know, gold dust, you really, that was something that you really wanted to achieve. So even though my dad wanted me to take an apprenticeship on the wharfs and the Royal Docks, um, I wasn't really up for that. And really, I, I, all I wanted to do was, was get on the railway from the start, although I had to persuade my parents that that would have been a, a good career. So it was a careers office. I got me an interview at a place called St. Pancras Chambers, which was the hotels and caterings. Uh, sort of headquarters for North London and I had an interview there and I started on my mum's birthday on the 6th of January 1959. 1971 mm -hmm. and uh, the gr group of friends that I had, three or four of them were working on the railway and they just said go down to King's Cross, go into these offices, ask to see a guy called RSM Baker uh, and ask him for a job, and I did. I went in, found him, I said, got some friends here, um, can I have a job? And basically he said, uh, what are you doing next week? And I said, nothing, why? And he said, well, start Monday. <laughs> it was as easy as that. I made myself a promise that I'd, you know, I'd quit my job, I'd committed to doing this, and that I was gonna give it six weeks. They weren't going to get rid of me for six weeks. I mean, subsequently, I kept upping it to three months, and then I thought, well, they're not getting rid of me for a year. And that was the kind of, it was sort of back against the wall, you know, things are going to be difficult. Thank you for listening to episode one of The Train at Platform 5. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project was set up and run by arts education and heritage specialist Digital Works, who worked with Candom Local Study Centre. To find out more about our history projects, including documentary films, podcasts, and to listen to the full unedited interviews for this project, please visit www.digital-works.co.uk. Please join us for the second episode where we explore more stories from King's Cross Station. <laughs>